Well, good morning and uh, add my welcome to Tim and to Hills. It is great to be in the Trinity's nightclub. Uh, I never realised I was so edgy. Uh, I'm with Tim. It's great, isn't it? Um, Anyway, welcome to you this morning, wherever you are, wherever you're joining us from. And especially as, uh, as Hills and Tim said, if you're new joining us this morning, you are so welcome. So we've been going through the book of Exodus together. We've been uh, journeying with God's people as they, as they journeyed together. And uh, we're really nearly there. Next week is our final message. Hills is going to be bringing the final message in this amazing story to us next week. We've been trying to connect uh, with God's story and, and the people of God's story all those thousands of years ago and then our story now. And uh, we're, as I said last week, we're doing this because of the authority of Scripture. We, we know, I hope, don't we, that culture changes. Of course it does. Circumstances change. Of course they do. But human nature doesn't change. And God's nature doesn't change. And so scripture always speaks to us with authority. We're always going to God's word to understand more about who God is, number one, and then secondly, who we are in response to him. That's an absolute conviction for us as a church family, and I hope it is for, for you. Maybe you're fresh to this. Maybe you're, you're, you haven't engaged with God's word in that way. Well, friends, please do. Please invite God, the Holy Spirit, to come, as I do now. Come in every home, in every heart, as we open God's Word. God's Word. God speaking to us through these pages. God who inspired the writing through the Holy Spirit. God who inspires the listening and the living through the power of the Holy Spirit. Last week I shared one little method that we can use to help us read God's word well and it's going to just come up again on the screen. Coma, I hope you can make it out. It's in the notes from last week's talk as well. We look at context, we then observe what's going on, we then ask ourselves about meaning critically. What did it mean when it was written? And then we think about how we apply it to our lives. Coma, a little method that we can use as we try and read God's word and let it speak to us, let God speak to us through it. As we've gone through this story, we've been thinking, I've suggested three sections. The early part of Exodus, God's rescue of his people from slavery in Egypt. God demonstrates his power over all of the gods, small g, that they had in Egypt and the the forces of those gods and the power of that empire. Egypt was the greatest power at that time probably and represented all of the ways of the world in perhaps opposition to the ways of God, although it is God's world. And then the second part, the the middle part of of this Exodus story, restoration. So rescue and then restoration. God's relationship with his people is restored as God gives relationship. It's important to see it that way. God gives relationship and he gives um, the covenant. He, He renews the covenant, not a contract with his people. And he renews the relationship and he gives the framework, as we saw of the Ten Commandments, a framework for life in all its fullness. 
It's not restrictive in the sense of trying to prevent and spoil. Actually, it's a framework that, that frees. And then this last part of the story, I was thinking last week and again this week, we're thinking and next week. The final third part is the reconstruction of God's people around his presence and around worship. And that's what we're thinking about at the moment. And last week we, uh, we talked about the, the tabernacle, this amazing tent construction. Here's, here's one I made earlier. There, there's the Blythe tabernacle. It, it's made with intricacy and, and, and it's a colour in, in the wilderness, the desert of, of Cornwall, as it was on that particular occasion. Made with, made with such precision, even close to the precision of the original tabernacle. Nick's just going to pop up on screen just one person's interpretation, one person's image of the, the tabernacle tent. Thanks, Nick. I don't know if it looked like that exactly, but what we do have in Scripture is we have um, in, in these chapters of Exodus such description of the intricacy and the details. So I said last week, it's, it's made to the pattern that God gives. It's the, the pattern of heaven. Heaven on earth, the gold, all the finest detail, all the colours have such symbolism. If you remember back to chapter 25 of Exodus and then if you read chapters 26 to 31, Hills made comment about it. There's the table of fellowship, table with bread on it. We're going to be coming to celebrate Maundy Thursday, the Last Supper, the bread on the table, table, the place of meeting. And then in the centre is the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant. We were just showed that picture last week again, didn't I? This gold-lined, gold-covered chest, cherubims on, on top as symbolisms now of God's message and God's welcome for his people. And that, that lid, the, the seat of mercy, the place of atonement. God is present with his people as he is present with us. It's a tent, not a temple at this point. God is the, the pilgrim God who travels with his people as they go forward towards the land that has been promised to them. And his presence is holiness and his presence is purity. He is God almighty, but he's seated on the mercy seats. The seat of atonement, mercy and grace are found in his presence. And there's the foreshadowing, isn't there, of Jesus, therefore. As I said in that coma method, we, we see that the whole of Scripture, the whole of Old Testament points us towards Jesus, who then fulfills everything we have in the Old Testament part of our, our Bibles. Fulfillment, Matthew's favourite word in his Gospel account. And so what we see in the tabernacle and the ark foreshadows, points towards, anticipates what we find in Jesus. I, I referenced last week and maybe in groups this week you read Hebrews 9. Here's just a, a few verses from Hebrews 9. I haven't got time this morning to read all of them, but, um, but just chapters, uh, sorry, verse 1 and 2. And then I'm going to skip to 11, 12 and to 15. Hebrews Chapter 9, verse 1. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand, the table and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy 
place. And then verse 11, when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say, not a part of this creation. Verse 12, he did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. And then verse 15, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. God is present with his people. Everything is set. Everything is, is right. And then it all goes completely wrong. Here's another Blythe family album picture. Can you see me standing in front of that waterfall, the golden halo of water shining down on me? I am Andrew, the anointed one in my family. This photo was taken shortly before Nikki and I had one of our biggest arguments. How quickly the halo dropped in the Blythe household that day. As I've said, if you read through Exodus chapters 26 to 31, God sets out to Moses in intricate detail the tabernacle. It's the pattern of heaven and he teaches them about worship. He sets apart priests, as Hill said, people who will be there to assist them in their worship at that time. But it takes time. And that's the problem. It takes more time than the people want. Verse 1 of chapter 32, Exodus 32 when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your son and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. Moses was too long on the mountain. We're meant to notice the, the stupidity this, this chapter to the first hearers, again, let's remember Coma. What did the first hearers hear? This first chapter is filled with a kind of dark humour. The stupidity. They've, they've just experienced the most amazing rescue. They've been led through the wilderness. They've had manna from heaven. They've had water provided to them. They've met at the foot of a mountain. They've had a tabernacle created. They, they, they've been given all of these things by God. And yet there they are. And as soon as it takes a bit too long for God, well, to do whatever God might be doing, 
even as Moses is on the mountain meeting with God, it takes too long. And so they say, they say to Aaron, we want our own gods. Here's just a quick summary of chapter 32. I'm not going to have time to read it all this morning, but Moses is, is delayed on the mountain. The people ask for God's small g. Aaron, as we've heard, turns uh, gold earrings into a, takes them from them, he turns them into a golden calf. If you read on, there's feast, there's a great feast and there's play. I'll come to that word in a moment. God who knows all of this is going on, sends Moses down with great urgency. Towards the end of the chapter, Moses intercedes and God, we're told, relents. We'll come back to that again. There is, though, a terrible price to pay. But mercy and grace triumph ultimately. You see, what's going on here is when... The Israelites say to Aaron, make us God, small g. They're returning spiritually, emotionally to Egypt, aren't they? We saw right at the beginning of the story that Egypt had gods, plural, gods of every kind. And now in their impatience, in their sense of self-entitlement, how could God keep us waiting? Doesn't he know what we need? They want to make gods. And the, the stupidity, the irony, is they're even going to be prepared to worship gods that they've made themselves. At least the Egyptians had the god of the sun, the god of the moon, the god of the sea. This is a god made out of the gold that they've taken from Egypt. The perversity of sin. The deception of sin. Aaron takes their gold earrings, as I've said, that they've taken from Egypt. He makes a calf and then we read, he says, these are your gods. It's deliberate to be plural. The writer knows that it's only a young bull that we're talking about that you know, maybe reflects one of the gods of Egypt, the bull god of Egypt, or perhaps other commentators say the god of Baal. And he says, these are your gods. And the people go, yes. Even though we've seen you make this, the perversity of evil and sin, the deception. Because then Moses says, uh, then Aaron says, uh, builds an altar and then says, we're going to have a feast to the Lord. Now, Aaron doesn't come out well in this chapter. Was he maybe trying to still redirect the people to God, the Lord, even though they've got this God of a little bull, a young bull? Or is there again another kind of deception, the idea that you can worship the I am, the one true God, through other gods? Certainly what happens is not holy. There's a, a feast. And then I said that word play, or in the NIV translation, revelry. In Hebrew, it means sex play. This is a drunken orgy. Pretty comprehensively, just like St. Andrew went from a golden glow into the depths of argument in his family and spoilt a holiday, the people of God here have managed to comprehensively break almost every single one of the Ten Commandments. 
in just a matter of whatever time. God was at work on the mountain. He was meeting with Moses. He hadn't left them and yet in their impatience, they're saying, where is God? He's taking too long. They make an idol, exactly what they're not to do, God has said. The power of Egyptian culture is strong in them. The subtlety, the idea that you can feast to the Lord through an idol, with an idol. As I've said, God's response, God sends, he sees everything. That's an important thing to to note. He sees everything. God knows everything. He knows exactly what's going on down at the bottom of the mountain whilst Moses is with him at the top. Verse 7, he says, get back down the mountain. He says there's a real urgency. And he says, your people, no longer, you see, are they God's people? The tense is, the language is deliberate. Your people, Moses, have become corrupt. There's a consequence we expect. Verse 9 and 10, let's read it together. 32 verse 9 and 10. I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. It's an illusion from an ox or a donkey not going in the direction it's meant to go. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. It's what should have happened, isn't it? It's what we would expect. The holiness of God. A people who have turned and rejected him completely comprehensively. And so God says, I will burn them up. I will fulfill my covenant through Abraham and through you, Moses, because I'll start again. I'll create a new people to live in the right way. But friends, we need to remember that this is narrative. This isn't CNN. There wasn't a film crew at the time. This is the people of God remembering back. And as they remember back, what they do is they express God's actions in human language, in human words. It's really important to see that as we read narrative in the Old Testament. They're looking back. They're saying to themselves in human terms, what happened then? They're actually saying to to themselves, of course, why didn't God do what we would expect God to do? What God would have entire right to do? Why didn't God consume us with fire and burn us up and start again? We read the way it's told as a story, again, expressing God's actions in human words. We must see that that's what's going on. It's the best we can do as human beings. But our language, our words do not adequately, completely describe God. Only as he reveals himself to us are we given what we can understand. It's always that way round. The writer pictures Moses, verses 11 and 14. Here we go, chapter 32. But Moses sought the favour of the Lord his God. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people who you, you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? 
And then verse 14, then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Moses' prayer is short but strong, says one commentator. There's an urgency, a pleading expressed through Moses' prayer. It does have compassion for the people. But the most important thing about Moses' prayer is the honour of God. Exactly the opposite of what the people are doing in dishonouring God, in just focused on themselves. Moses here expresses what should have been happening, the honour of God. You are the Lord God. There is none greater than you. And so all the language, although the language here is relenting, we know that God doesn't change his mind. We know that God didn't get it wrong the first time round. What we're being described as we look back, as the storyteller says, what happened? Why didn't we get consumed? Why weren't we burnt up with fire? Well, it can only be because of the mercy of God. The one who sits on the Ark of the Covenant, the one who sits on the mercy seat, the place of atonement. Moses goes down the mountain, confronts Aaron. Verse 17, there's a, the noise of, of war in the camp. The noise of war, it's a spiritual war. A spiritual battle is the noise. He breaks the tablets that have they've got the commandments on them. It's both a, a symbol of, of, of his state, but it's also ceremonial. The breaking of the covenant that has gone in is reflected physically. He grinds, if you read on, he grinds the, the, the calf, the young calf, the gold into dust and he makes the people eat it. It's both a symbol of punishment, but it's also a symbol of the absorption, the total absorption of the sin and the evil. For those of us who think about what happened when Jesus died on the cross, the atonement and we think what happens to sin, we think what happens to evil. This is a powerful image, picture of the absorption of sin. And then we get to the really tough finale. You thought some of where we've been already was hard, but if you look on to the end of chapter 32, there's a really tough bit, isn't there, that we need to hear and look at. Verse 25 and verse 26 of, of the passage. Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so become a laughingstock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Running wild. The picture the storyteller gives us is of complete anarchy, of complete deprivation, complete exposure of the illusion that, that freedom in this kind of unchecked way actually is good for us. It, 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 it isn't. To play rugby well, you need to follow the rules of the game. This 
version of freedom. A version of freedom which many in our world today call for or imagine they're working towards doesn't bring health. It doesn't bring wholeness. It doesn't bring good for anyone. It brings anarchy. And the ones who come, and this is the question, isn't it? Who is with me, says God? Who is for the Lord? And the tribe of the Levites come. And there's something we find hard perhaps to reconcile. There's a a punishment. There's a consequence for sin as 3,000 of the people are killed that day by the Levites. Andrew, how can you reconcile Jesus? How can you reconcile a God of love with this kind of thing in the Old Testament? Isn't the, the God of the New Testament and the God of the Old Testament, they appear so different? Well, friends, coma, meaning. What would have shocked the first hearers of this story? What they would have noticed, what they would have focused on is not the 3,000 who were killed, but the hundreds of thousands who were spared. It's hard for our modern ear to hear this, but we need to invite the Holy Spirit to do this work in us. God is holy. God is pure. God is righteous. God has given a framework for life. God has given a covenant and the people have rejected it. The just and right thing perhaps to have done in any sense would have been for them to have been consumed by fire. For every single one of them to have been killed and for God to have started again. The shock, the shock is God's mercy in not exercising his judgment and God's grace in restoring his people, in forgiving I could take you through the Old Testament and although there are many challenging pieces, I could show you a similar pattern throughout the Old Testament. Whenever there are passages where we see the consequences of sin resulting in death, what you will see is the pattern of a God who waits and waits and waits, sometimes for centuries, waiting and warning his people, sending prophet after prophet, come back to me, return to me. You will see that people are always spared. That the forgiveness of God is expressed. We cannot take away some things as we read the Exodus story. It is Lent. A guy called A.W. Tozer, a writer, Tozer said, there's not been a new sin invented since the beginning of recorded history. Culture changes, society changes, but human nature doesn't change. God doesn't change. How quickly sin can divert us and distract us and take us away from our relationship with God. How deceptive sin is. How, how sin twists, how sin creates an idol and says you can still worship God. You can have God and have the altar and you can just have this as well. Add a God to the God. 
How quickly and easily we can get caught up in a notion and understanding of freedom, which is not freedom at all. We have to hear this story. We have to feel the shock of the consequence of sin to understand why it matters. It started, didn't it, with impatience. It started in the same way that it starts in me, actually, often. God, why aren't you doing it now? Why aren't you doing it my way? Now. Who is God? Who is God in our lives? Who is God in our lives? G.K. Chesterton, the writer, famously wrote a letter to the Times. What's wrong with the world, he wrote? I am yours truly. How easy it is to look at others and judge. How easy it is to say, well, I don't break those bits of the Ten Commandments like those people over there. How easy it is to let sin and evil, let the devil deceive us and take us away from the true worship of the one holy God. Someone also has famously said, never give the devil a ride. He'll always want to drive. Never give the devil a ride in your life. Don't even let him in the passenger seat. Because he'll want to drive your life and mine. In Lent... As we prepare for Easter, as we prepare for the story of the cross, as we come to celebrate communion around the table as the Lord gathers us, the Last Supper, as we reflect on the events of Good Friday, yes, we need to be an Easter people. Yes, we're looking to Sunday, but let's not skip Thursday, Friday or Saturday. And many are saying, this is more like an Easter Saturday time in our generation than any other time, perhaps. Maybe you're hearing this for the first time. Maybe you're hearing this for the first time. Maybe you're hearing this for the first time. Aaron and the people had not actually personally encountered the presence of God. The Egyptian culture was deep in them, just as culture around us is deep in us. Come to the presence of God. Invite the Holy Spirit to come into you. Meet with God and meet with his forgiveness, because this ultimately, friends, is a story of forgiveness. It's a story of mercy, a story of grace, a story of God who loves us so much that he came in Jesus, God with us, 
And he gave his life to die on the cross. And in his atonement on the cross, all of sin has been absorbed. All of the punishment that we deserve has been absorbed. And he can give us life in all its fullness. If we come to him 